Let me pray and we'll get started, okay? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day, Lord. Thank you for this Lord's Day. We can come before you and worship, Lord, in light of your great faithfulness to us, Lord. Thank you that you have, in your faithfulness, Lord, been faithful to redeem us and to keep us, Lord, to give us an inheritance and, as Scripture promises us, that you will keep us, Lord, until we arrive at last at your kingdom, Lord, and we're so grateful today, Lord, that we can gather around your precious word as a church, that we can uh, come to your word as a means of grace, Lord, to strengthen our souls, to renew our mind, Father, and to direct our path. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that, that you would be uh, our teacher today and that you would be our guide. Father, we pray that you would bring our mind into greater conformity to your word. Lord, we confess that our minds left to ourselves Our minds are futile, our minds are darkened, Lord. Our minds, because of the radical effects of sin, the noetic effects of sin on the mind, uh, Lord, our our minds are tainted and and they're soiled and they're shot through with all sorts of fallibility. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would bring our minds into a a proper frame, Lord, that we would think the thoughts of God after him, as, uh, as it's been said. And so we pray, God, give us your wisdom. Give us the mind of Christ, as Paul says, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, so we continue an uh, introduction that was supposed to last only one week. Uh, I couldn't get there because of what I did to myself. Uh, and today, let me just move this over here because it's the wrong place. You know, when you go to Pages, uh, I'm just convinced, Pages is evil. Micro- uh, Microsoft Word is holy because it works the way it works right. Uh, no, I mean that. I, I've battled the demons of pages in the middle of the night trying to prepare a sermon, and I hate it. And so, and, you, know, I, you know, I thought Microsoft Word was bad, not until I started messing around with pages. I'm just, just do what I tell you to do. Okay, so today we're going to keep going uh, and talking about uh, Reformed theology. We did a little bit of history and just kind of uh, uh, try to understand uh, what is the Reformed faith, what is it built on, when did it start, who were the key players, how did it develop, Uh, My time with you is very limited because I only get one uh, day to kind of cover broadly some of these highlights. And so I just if you know, some of you are new to the Reformed faith. Some of you have studied the Reformed faith for a long time. You know it backwards and forwards. And so many of you can come up and teach this class. Uh, But I I just thought, you know, where we are as a church, um, there's a lot of us that don't understand the Reformed faith, that are not acquainted, could not rattle off the five points of Calvinism, could not tell us what the five solas of the Reformation are, cannot explain each sola properly, you know, things like that. And so I just thought, you know, we would go over those. But uh, the Reformation was built on the five solas, uh, as they are called, the five solas of the Reformation. And what are they? Maybe I should have wrote them up there. <laughs> but one of them, okay, so let me just write uh, essentially what, the, what it was. Wow, this is a nifty, it's got a Velcro grip and everything. Uh, uh, the first one had to do with Scripture, right? And uh, what does sola mean? What does the word sola mean? Yeah, alone. Now, that's kind of a weird way of saying it, right? Like Scripture alone, or okay, we understand that to one degree. But when they said alone, uh, even that took different shape, okay? Uh, because when you say Scripture alone, what you're saying in a sense is Scripture is the final authority, right? Final. Uh, but there was others like sola fide, right? And sola fide, I don't even know if I wrote that right, but no, it's not right. And I always do that. 
I, I promise you, I am dyslexic. I have to be. I used to, my first pastor, my first real pastor, uh, was a dyslexic pastor, severely dyslexic. He couldn't read a signpost on the street. Everything that he ever studied was through audio, so we would read, the church, the whole church would read for him on cassette tapes. You know how, old, how old I am here. <laughs> we were on cassette tapes, and he had stacks and stacks of tapes, so we'd read commentaries for him and everything, and he'd have to listen on cassette and follow along, and then he'd get up there and preach, and we just, we wouldn't even know how he could do it, you know. He was severely dyslexic, you know. It's amazing. What a miracle, right? Uh, and, and he was a good preacher, uh, until it came to the no, until it came to these issues here. <laughs> but uh, scripture alone, meaning final. But if we say uh, fide, faith. This is the word for faith, right? So if faith is alone, which that's that's even wrong. Why am I spelling that wrong? What is it? Oh man, Luther would Luther would stone me right about now. <laughs> but you know, if we say faith alone, what are we talking about, right? We're we're not saying that faith is by itself. What's that? You had it right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, because, you, you know, Luther would have said it that way, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, you know, we are in a Lutheran church. <laughs> so that was funny. Uh, but faith alone means that faith is uh, the only uh, means through which we are saved. Now, you've got to be careful there because we have another word, which is uh, gratia. And gratia is grace, right? These are Latin terms that the Reformers developed. Now, this is, very, uh, this is very important here because when we're talking about faith and grace, you guys know, uh, did I tell you guys I'm debating some Armenian dude? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm doing a formal debate for Living Waters in their television studios, and we're going to be debating um, uh, uh, apologetics methodology. And I said the only, re- the only way I'll agree to do it is if, all, if, if I can be reformed and you guys don't try to tell me not to be a Calvinist or not to be reformed, you know, it's not going to work or else I won't do it. They agreed, so I'm doing it, but uh, I've listened to some of his teachings where he mixes the two over and over and over, and he says, you are saved, watch this now, by faith. Uh, What do you mean by by faith? Well, I understand that you're saved by grace, Right, But scripture is very clear because in the Greek text it uses prepositions like dia. You can almost read that in English. right? It almost looks like an English word, but it's not. It's a Greek word, dia, that means through. Okay, So scripture, very careful, very cautiously, makes a distinction. I've studied every prepositional construction, every single one, in relationship to faith. Never is faith used in such a way where faith is the ground of our salvation. It is always and only the instrument, the means of our salvation, whereas uh, gratia is the ground of our salvation. You are saved by grace. That's the basis. Through faith, that's the instrument. Okay, You mix that up, you go from monergism to synergism just like that, and you didn't even know what you did. Okay, And then you got Calvinists all mad at you. Okay, so scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone. What's the other ones? Yeah. Christus, right? Christ alone. It's based on the work of Christ alone. And what's the last one? Uh, yeah. Uh, Deo, Gloria, or something like that, right? Uh, glory to God alone. So everything is for the glory of God alone. This, the, the, these are uh, 
these are the five solas of the Reformation, and the Catholic Church disagreed with each one of these to some degree. They would say everything's for the glory of God alone, but their system of theology doesn't allow that because it does give glory to man. It gives glory to man in a synergistic way. Synergism, we looked at that, right? Uh, the idea that man and God work together for their salvation, whereas the Reformers said, no, absolutely not. It's monergism, right? Why? Be well, because precisely because of grammatical constructions like this. You see, it was all rooted in the text of Scripture. So any questions about the solas? Any questions at all? Anything you guys would like to point out? Yes, ma'am. Sola is not what? Oh, yes, correct. It's not solo scriptura. What's the difference, Amanda? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, a perfect example of that, perfect uh, perfect reason why we should uh, see it that way, of course, would be like Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and following, right? If, if Scripture alone meant Scripture only, meaning you can only read Scripture and nothing outside of Scripture, which is not what the Reformers ever taught, right, then uh, what do you do with passages like Ephesians 4, 11 and following? You know, Christ gave to the, s the church some apostles, some prophets, some teachers and pastors for the edifying of the church, the equipping of the saints. We're supposed to listen to sermons, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole purpose. So as long as uh, we all understand we're operating on the basis of sola scriptura, uh, that's, that's really all that matters, okay? So, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, th I think it, uh, it came after, uh, after the debating back and forth with Rome. They began to crystallize each one of these points to finer and finer points. It's like they were always there, right? But I don't think, like, Luther woke up one morning and said, the five solas, you know? <laughs> I think it, it worked out just kind of like the five points of Calvinism. It was after debating the remonstrance, the, the, the group of Catholic scholars, and going back and forth that each point became refined until at last, you know, especially towards the Synod of Dort, you know, the, the, assembly, the Westminster Assembly and all of that, you know, they began to uh, all, all think in this way. I don't know when the very first time the five solas were published or something like that, but that'd be an interesting thing for you guys to go research. I'm not going to do all the work for you, <laughs> not today. And then, okay, so five, you know, uh, I was in Israel and I was talking to, uh, the second time I was in Israel and I was talking to a pastor there and uh, Phil DeCourcy and he asked me what my theology was. I said, I am a 10-point uh, reformed Protestant Calvinist. <laughs> he goes, 10 points. I go, yeah, I believe in the five solas and the five points of Calvinism. <laughs> 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 and he's like, well, I'm going to use that. <laughs> and, and so uh, then th the five points, you know, that's important too, which that's what it is. I didn't even give it to you guys because I thought you guys all know what these are. Uh, what, what, what is the first point of Calvinism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> Total depravity. What's the, what's the next one? You know what I'm doing. 
<laughs> I, I I didn't even ask you guys for tulip, and you're already doing tulip. You know, uh, what 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 is it? That was a real question, by the way. That's scary. <laughs> Unconditional election. Okay, what's the next one? And I want you to <laughs> the big. I want you guys to be thinking of which one for you is the hardest. Number one. Number two, which one is the most misunderstood? So you guys are going to tell me. What's the next one? That's right. Something like that, right? Uh, irresistible grace. Okay. Uh, uh, what, what's another one? Oh, I saw one of my heroes writing on the board. I can't remember who it was, and his writing was worse than mine. I was like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel so bad anymore. What's, what's the last one? Yeah. Perseverance saints, right? Uh-oh. Got a little debate going on here. What did Kadev say? Preservation, not, perse- not perseverance. Oh. You're like a hyper-Calvinist all of a sudden. Right? You're too good for the Calvinist crowd. Uh, I agree with you. I mean, I think it's both and, right? But um, So what are we saying here? So, okay, wha- what's the answer? Which is the hardest and which is the most misunderstood? Who's got the hardest one? Okay, for you, which one was the hardest to get over, maybe? <laughs> I know which one it was for me. Limited atonement. Anybody else? Limited atonement's usually the one that everyone has the hardest time with. Is anyone willing to say something else was harder for you? Yes, sir. Uh, total, depravity. total depravity. Why? Why so? What, what, what made it hard? Don't you see sinners all over the world? Uh. Oh, okay. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay, yeah. So it was born out of self-righteousness. Okay, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, each one of these, each one of these, if, if you really meditate deeply on them, you know. Uh, now, Ben, do you know uh, what the Reformers meant by total depravity? Like, what, what did they imply by that? Uh, this is a very carefully formulated. These these doctrines are carefully formulated. They are. This is not a. This acronym did not arise just because of you know, it, it, you know, just to have an efficient way of teaching it. You know, what I mean, uh, each one of these doctrines is carefully articulated. What did they mean by total depravity? Try to fill in some of the definition of that. Okay, so would you agree with the term inability? Yeah, because you said incapable. So that's exactly right. Uh, total depravity does not just mean man is a sinner. It, it, it got to the issue of man's ability. And so what the reformers, uh, especially after Luther did all his work on the bondage of the will, what they said is, you know, man is not only a sinner in, in the eyes of God, but by virtue of his sin nature, he is incapable of pleasing God. Anybody have a verse on that? Romans 8. What else? Who? What was it? Is that what that? Yeah, Romans chapter 8. That's the one that comes to mind. Absolutely. Romans chapter 8 says, you know, what does it say? Yeah, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, right? It's, uh, what does it say? It, it's not able to please God, right? It doesn't submit to the law of God. Indeed, it's not even able to. So it's like, uh, 
you know, no matter how much people want to. I mean, think about Luther before Luther was saved. There he is scrubbing the floors, flogging his back, trying to do penance. And yet God is saying, you are not able to please me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because all of his works were shot through with self-righteousness and, and, and self, you know? Yeah, yeah. Mm. All of man has been corrupted, so that's why we're unable to please God. Because you know we don't desire yeah. all of sin has affected our mind. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So every aspect of man, right? The total person, the whole person, has been affected by sin, right? Every aspect: your mind, your body, your will, your affections, your your motives. You know. Yes, ma'am. Uh, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Or uh, or 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 uh, Jeremiah seventeen nine. Right. It says uh, the the heart of man is desperately wicked above all things. You know who can know it? I the Lord God know that test the hearts. You know so. Uh, yeah. That, so so there you see it. But as wicked as man is, what else did the doctrine of whole depravity uh, teach? Or what? Let's put it this way. What else did it not teach? What did it not teach? Not utter depravity. That's right. That's right. Not utter depravity. I mean, uh, you could just go around the world, check the headlines and look at what's going on in popular culture to say, man, man is utterly depraved. Well, actually, no. Uh, You ever seen the rainbow in the sky, right? Like God has made a covenant to preserve the world from, you know, just going into a headlong self-annihilation. You know, can you imagine if God took away, and I think he will right before the Lord returns, he will take away that hand of restraint and let man just completely go their way, you know. Right. So what do you say that from man, we get a part in Adam's world? And like Jeffrey Epstein, like that seems to come out of his fiance. Yeah, take the, m- take the most wicked person on earth, right? And they're still not utterly depraved. I mean, I like to use the example, Hitler had a dog. And that was, he, he loved that pet. You know, he had a German shepherd and he would pet it and be nice to it. <laughs> How's Hitler capable of kindness? That shows you that uh, as depraved as he was, he was not utterly depraved. Okay. Uh, and, and so, okay, so anything, else? okay, everybody got mad at limited atonement at first. Come on, just admit it. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. Limited atonement was the doctrine that I refused to believe in prior to becoming reformed. And I told myself, I will not believe. I was like Thomas. I will not believe unless I see it in the Greek text. That's what I told myself. And so I said, I, ref- I refuse to read James White. Forget that guy. You know, that guy's Calvinist, you know. I don't want to read, uh, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Sproul. I refuse to read. I, was, I had this, you know, really immature sort of, you know, uh, uh, grudge against them you know what i mean it's just like they're just gonna make me calvinist i'm not reading that stuff you know and say i i will not believe in the doctrines of grace until i can prove it from the greek text the original text right so i went through greek i learned greek and then i came back to this passage first john chapter what did i say first john chapter two my little children i'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin if anyone sins we have an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous Uh, yeah the righteous the righteous one Okay, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not of our sins only, but also for those of the whole world. And I say, see, that's the Calvinist killer right there. 
And uh, I've been listening to this guy that I'm going to debate, you know, and I've been listening to him explain this text amazingly enough. And I knew it. I'm just waiting for him. Here it comes. Here it comes. And his interpretation is uh, that Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, not only of our sins, but the whole world. And what he's saying is that, see, he made atonement for the whole world, but the problem is people don't believe. Okay, and so therefore, Jesus made atonement possible, but people need to believe in order for the atonement to work kind of thing, right? Now, why do I bring you here, right? Because you see the word is, <laughs> he is the propitiation, right? That is, a, that is a bound to an indicative mood in the Greek. The type of argument that I used to argue and that that brother is arguing is would be a subjunctive construction, which means it is potential that he is the propitiation. He might be the propitiation of the whole world. You see what I'm saying? Now, here's, the, here's, here's a double-edged sword. Well, wait a minute. If John is saying, because the indicative mood is the mood of reality, it's the mood of what is real. It's not the imperative. The imperative is the mood of command, what you ought to do, right? It's not the subjunctive of what could be. It's in the indicative, what is. And so then uh, you have another question to answer. If John uses the indicative of the whole world, how do you define world? Because according to the grammar, every man, woman, and child that has ever lived, ever will live, and ever has lived will be saved. So how do you, on the one hand, avoid universalism, which is clearly condemned in the Bible, and Jesus condemns it outright, you know, uh, you know, things like, that. I mean, all over the scriptures, right? Book of Revelation, whoever's name is not found in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. I mean, there's no way around that. And so I say, well, uh, and this is where Thomas Schreiner really helped me out. A lecture I was listening to by Tom Schreiner. He says, no, 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 the world is the whole world, no exception, not the whole world, uh, the whole world, no distinction, not the whole world, no exception. You guys get the point, the difference? It's like it's the whole world, no exceptions, then that means every man, woman, and child has had the blood of Jesus propitiate the wrath of God on their behalf. And therefore, there is no wrath left for them, right? But if it is no distinction, that means Jew and Gentile, male and female, free and sk bound, Scythian, barbarian, everything that <laughs> Paul says everywhere else and the Bible says everywhere else, you see. So that is, a, that is an argument that uh, is bound by the grammar and was very persuasive to me when I was studying that because I thought, okay, uh, you know, I've had some really heavy choices to make here. Why do I keep saying that the propitiation is something that is potential for man? That's not the way that John wrote it. You know what I mean? <laughs> he could have easily used the subjunctive very easily and would have conveyed that notion that he could be the propitiation for your sins if you believe. But that's not what he said. So then the only thing left to do is to define the word world. So uh, limited atonement then states that Jesus Christ made atonement specifically for the sin of his people. What are some verses on that? Anybody? Yeah? He will save his people from their sins. Yeah, that's right. And then, uh, you know, like another verse I'm going to take them to is John chapter 6. Look at that real quick. There's no breakdown uh, in this, the logic of this text. You know, um, <coughs> this is like the big one, you know. This is, this is, it's almost like you get the whole enchilada right here. Because... Verse 37 <coughs> makes it clear. Oh, this is such a profound text. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So right there, 
you have the, the you have the language of the father giving something to the son. When did that happen? How does that happen, right? And uh, this is where covenant theology, which is on the list here, uh, this is where covenant theology comes into play because uh, what covenant theology says is that from all eternity, the Father, sp- Son, and Spirit had covenanted together over the, uh, the pact of salvation. So they made a pact, an agreement. And, and part of the pact was that the Father would give to the Son a certain amount of people to redeem Right. And uh, uh, and he says those that the father did give to him, uh, he says, they, w- what do they do? Um, the one that comes to me, I will not cast out. And then um, let's see here. Uh, where does it start? Well, let's just read. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, that's that will of him who sent me. I mean, we can't think of that as some haphazard thing, something that just comes out of nowhere. What I'm suggesting is that all of that is covenantally bound. There's a reason why Jesus is making those kind of statements. It's the covenantal worldview that he comes from. Uh, Everything Jesus thought was covenantal in nature, in a sense, we could say, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now, that's interesting. It says he loses nothing. It goes almost from like an abstract. He argues from like the whole to the particular as he goes on, because look at verse 44. He says, no one... Uh, no, uh, no one can come to me. I mean, it's almost like over Calvinism here. Just put John chapter six, right? <laughs> because here now we're talking about total, total depravity, emphasizing the aspect of total inability. No one can come to me unless what happens? Unless the father who sent me draws him. And so here we get to the, the issue of irresistible grace. That if the Father draws him, what happens if the Father draws you? Or we could even use uh, this here, uh, uh, Helkuo here, uh, you could even substitute that for calls you. You see what I'm saying? So to use the language of Paul, if you are, remember Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and following, if you are called, you will be, yeah, if you go down the list, what's the last one on the list? That's right. If you are called, you are glorified. It's exactly what Jesus is saying here. If you are drawn by the Father, if you are irresistibly drawn, if you are effectually called, as the reformers would say, then you will be raised up on the last day. So you will be resurrected by Christ. Notice that. I will raise him up on the last day. Wow. How about that? How many times do we give Jesus the credit for our resurrection? You know what I mean? He will raise us up by virtue of his power. And so, I mean, right there, it's like the whole, the whole thing is right there. Uh, irresistible grace, you know, a lot of people, they, they, I know limited atonement's a big one, but irresistible grace is another sticking point for people. You know, think about John, Ch- uh, no, I'm sorry, uh, Acts, uh, Acts chapter 7, you know, Stephen's sermon right at the end there, verse 51, 52, he tells them, you know, uh, he tells them, you know, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And so people say, see, <laughs> the spirit can be resisted. If the spirit can be resisted, then the grace of God can be resisted, right? And so what is, so the reformers would say, no, 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 it's like, that's, that's a rather, you know, naive way to approach a doctrine of irresistible by grace. We're not saying that we have never resisted the grace of God. Are you kidding me? Every last one of us resisted it to the hilt, right? As C.S. Lewis would say, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. People don't want to be saved. You want to talk about resisting the grace of God, we spurn the grace of God, right? And so what happens in irresistible grace is that it becomes irresistible, irresistible at the point that it becomes effectual. 
right? So when God effectually calls you, there is a, a point at which uh, he overcomes your resistance, right? In order to draw you to himself. So the language in this passage of coming, so substitute the word come for faith, right? In John chapter six, all over the place. He who has faith or he who believes in me, right? He who believes unto me or something like that. That's exactly what coming is all about. Coming means coming to Christ by faith, okay? Uh, John particularly has many synonyms for faith. Uh, Come, see, eat, drink, uh, all these things, right? These are all synonyms for faith, uh, metaphorically speaking. But here, it's like, yeah, we, we come to him because we are effectually drawn uh, by him. Effectual calling also looks like in Acts chapter 16 when God, it says, opened up the heart of Lydia to receive the things that were being spoken of by the, prof- by the apostles, right? And so that's exactly what happens. It's like, think about your own salvation. I mean, just think about how it happened to you, right? I mean, for years and years, you're resisting, resisting, resisting. Your heart is hardened and hardened. You hear it, you hear it, and you're saying, no, no, no. And then suddenly there's a strange, what is, uh, how did Calvin put it? There is a strange warming that takes place, right? Or you are overwhelmed all of a sudden with a sensation of, uh, maybe not sensation, but you know what I mean, with a sense of you're awakened, you're alive. Suddenly you're responding. And for the first time in your life, you're responsive to the call. How did that happen? Yeah, I know. See, I, I hate technology. <laughs> There's no way around. Okay, okay. Uh, let, let's, you guys see what I have going on here, okay? Uh, anal- analogia fide is another important one. What is that one, you guys? It's related to everything we're talking about. What is the analogia fide, the analogy of the faith? What is that? Anybody want to take a stab at that? Yeah, who, who said that? Nice and loud so we can hear you. Be present. Kristen lets me tease her. She's okay. She can handle it. Scripture interprets scriptures. The greatest hermeneutical idea I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> right? You don't have to read a stack of manuals on hermeneutics i have them i tell you i have them i've got stacks of manuals on interpretation they're like six seven hundred pages long i'm supposed to remember six or seven hundred pages to learn how to interpret the bible okay maybe i understand you know this is just shows us the wonder of scripture the depths of scripture, the meticulous nature of scripture okay i got that but you know ultimately i can give you one thing to think about is how do i prove this scripture? how do i substantiate this text well with another text you see what I'm saying? Just like we did, John chapter 6. John chapter 6 opens up when you look at it in light of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, you know, opens up. You look at it in light of Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, you look at it, it opens up in light of Romans chapter 9. You see, and you're just going back and forth in Scripture. And so, or, or what's called intertextuality. You're just inside the mind of God in Scripture. It's marvelous. And so, wh- why, why do you think the Reformers came up with that? The analogy of the faith. Why? Sure, sure. They didn't have sola scriptura. They had sola ecclesia, right? The church alone or the church is the final interpreter of all things faith and practice. So it was absolutely to combat that and to put the power of the word of God in the hand of the believer, you know? Um, Yeah, absolutely. 
Any questions so far? What about the doctrines of grace? Still controversial? You better believe it. I mean, can you believe I had to bring up for this debate? Let me be a Calvinist. <laughs> it's like I got to get permission, you know, from whoever. It's unbelievable, right? I mean, but that's the way, I mean, what does that show us? Our, our whole um, uh, brothers and sisters, our church history moment, where we live, our evangelical time slot in which we're in, we're living at a time where the doctrines of grace became completely unacceptable. You believe that? It wasn't before. I mean, there was a heyday, right, especially after the Reformation during the Puritan era. You know, I remember listening to a sermon by Piper, and he was talking about Edwards, and he's like, everybody was a Calvinist back then, <laughs> like the glory days, right? And, and that went away, you know, uh, with the emergence of Finney and, and the emergence of higher criticism and the emergence of uh, Billy Graham and the emergence of the evangelical movement. Suddenly the doctrines of grace, you know, that uh, became unacceptable for the modern man. Philosophy took over. Postmodernism took over. Relativism took over, you know, and in light of that, you can't have a sovereign God, you know, in the light of all that. You certainly, you can't build a big church. You need to appeal. Oh, I was reading Lloyd-Jones last night. Lloyd-Jones said that in our time, what has happened is that pulpit does not tell the pew what to do the pew tells the pulpit what to do and it's like oh that's so good that's right that's exactly right um a friend blew into town he invited me to go to a church i looked at the church i'm like that's not a church i won't even tell you <laughs> it's just not a church i'm just like you know to me it's like it's such a market driven seeker sensitive consumer mentality it's just it's such a joke you know it's such a joke, right? Who was I talking? Peter, we were talking about Disneyland. Yeah. Yeah, Peter's visited a couple churches, you know, and I said, oh, it's like Disneyland. He's like, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> that's terrible, I mean. Huh? Yeah. Come on, man, what's wrong with fog machines, man? <laughs> it's the glory cloud. No. My, 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 <coughs> how we have fallen. Any, any insight? Questions, feedback on any of that, right? These are all very straight and forward, simple doctrines, but they change everything. How many of you guys have heard of Spurgeon? <laughs> okay, you get your Calvinist badge now. C.H. Spurgeon said that upon learning the doctrines of grace, he went from being a child to a man in his understanding. Exactly the words my father-in-law told me when I explained the doctrines of grace to him in his uh, kitchen once in uh, Lancaster, California. He got it. It's like the light. You ever seen the light bulb go on? People of Calvinism, right? And Mike tell you know Mike Beers, my father-in-law. He says, you know, I feel like I just became a man Th theologically. I'm like, you sound like Spurgeon. <laughs> You're in good company, man. <laughs> yeah, it's because you really mature and listen. These doctrines. Uh, some some would say, well, we need to start you know Calvinism with the S and call it stulip instead of tulip, you know, because we need to start with the sovereignty of God, you know. Like, first God is sovereign, then everything else follows. If you can accept that, the if you can accept the sovereignty of God, which a lot of people do not, uh, do they do not accept the sovereignty of God, not when you really flesh it out. You know, people want to believe in middle knowledge, people want to believe in Arminianism, Amaraldianism, they want to believe in all these you know, sort of deviations that weaken and soften the blow of the sovereignty of God. You know, it's like I tell people, stop trying to get God off the hook of what he says. You know what I mean? Listen, I defend the sovereignty of God in front of a wicked 
group of people every week at UNT, you know. They're asking me, these kids are really smart. They're asking me about double predestination, reprobation. They're asking me about, the, they're asking me about uh, federal headship, how, how we suffer for Adam's sin, all these things. This stuff is swirling around people's heads, and I'm convinced only the Reformed faith can answer, you know. Anyway, we can go on and on. We only have a couple minutes, but I just want to highlight quickly for us, like when we're thinking about Reformed theology, Reformed theology came to be essentially synonymous with covenant theology. And one great thinker emerged, okay, during the uh, 17th century, and his name was Herman Witsius. He wrote The Economy of the Covenants, uh, a profound, detailed, rigorous, almost prolix work on covenant theology, uh, meaning it's so dense literarily uh, people just pick it up and put it right back down because it's like what happened to this guy you know it's just detailed you know fine print exhaustive you're just like do i need to know all of this you know but basically what witsius says is like wow he sees it you know witsius took a step back and said wait a minute so everybody's trying to say what everybody's trying to develop in their theology is like i see it it's a covenantal theology that emerges from the pages of scripture and this is the way that it works and out came you know two volumes, you know, 800 pages on covenant theology. I have it, and I, I dabble in it here and there. I, I wish I could read more of it only because of time constraint. I, I can't devote more time to it. But covenant theology, real quick, guys, this is the stuff that all of you need to know if you're going to carry your reform badge. There, you know, great covenants in the Bible. The first one is redemption. Right, we've covered this so many times. Uh, the second, oh look, I always made a mistake. Take my badge away. The next one, it's which one? Works, uh, grace, and then you have uh, from grace. We, we, we can kind of split it up into two ultimate great covenants, which would be the old covenant and the new covenant, and that comes with qualifications, all of that stuff. Okay. But basically what covenant theologians uh, recognize is that the concept of covenant comes from the Trinity, right? We looked a little bit here, Jesus talking about in John, uh, John chapter 6, talking about doing the will of God. In John chapter 17, he talks about the work that God gave him to do to accomplish that work in order to return back to the glory that he had with the Father from all, crea- you know, all the world and all of that. And then uh, the covenant of redemption is also seen in the Old Testament, where in the Psalms, for example, Psalm chapter 2, Psalm 89, many other Psalms, these are big ones. Why? Because what we're saying is that what lies behind the Davidic covenant ultimately is the covenant that God had made with his son, right? And that, that kind of works itself out throughout these covenants. Um, um, uh, uh, okay, so look at Galatians chapter. I had a dispensational family in our church once. They kind of did a backflip when we got to this passage of Scripture. <sighs> then they laughed sadly, but I couldn't. It's like this dispensationalist. I love them to death, but they don't ever want to sit and reason about theology. They just, you know. You ever encountered that? You know, I, it's just... They don't want to talk about it. It's just like, well, that's just what MacArthur says, and period. Well, how can I contend with MacArthur? I mean, you're just going to throw names around. Forget it. I lose already. I lose. But if you go to the text, look what it says, verse 19. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Why the law? It was added 
It was supplemental, in other words, because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, which is Moses, until the seed would come, watch this now, to whom the promise had been made. Who's the seed to come? And uh, this gentleman said, well, it's Abraham. Abraham is to come? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> right? So we already know because earlier, what did he say? Verse uh, 16, not to your seeds plural, but seeds singular, that is Christ. And so the seed to whom the promise is made. So what, what the commentators and others, theologians have what they're saying is that as God makes this covenant with Abraham, right, he's really, in a sense, it's really like a reflection, right? It's really a parallel, an analog to the promise in redemption that God had made to his son to redeem humanity through the seed of Abraham. You see what I'm saying? So Jesus stands behind all these great earthly covenants that are made. They're bound up in his covenantal agreement with the Father. So uh, that's amazing. I mean, you just read Psalm 89. Just read Psalm 89, the Davidic covenant, is a covenant that, what does that show you? Why did God make the Davidic covenant? Because he had made a prior covenant, the covenant of redemption, to have a king and a kingdom. And uh, that's what we find reflected there. She did so good. She went like 40, 50 minutes. I mean, better than some of you guys. <laughs> Especially listening to this stuff. You're going to like, Enough! <laughs> I understand. Uh, okay, any questions on that? I mean, that's covenant theology. <laughs> People spend a lifetime, you know, writing on this stuff. We'll do it in five minutes, right? <laughs> so covenant redemption is an intra-Trinitarian thing. The covenant of works is so amazing because it's made with Adam. But even then, you know, with Adam, you have Adam 1 and Adam 2. And so Adam 1 fails in the covenant of works. Where's the covenant of works? Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, for example, right? Chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. I'm actually making a connection of the covenant of works in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, where the apostle Paul lays the whole Athenian uh, uh, Areopagus, the whole pantheon of philosophers there, uh, lays them underneath the crisis of the covenant of works. Uh, I won't teach that yet, but that's, I think that's what's going on there. Uh, showing that all of man, by virtue of Adam, the God that created from one man, notice that Acts chapter 17 talks about that. Out of one man came the whole human race. And by virtue of what happens to that human race, guess what Paul says? I guess I am teaching Acts 17, but guess what Paul says in Acts chapter 17? All of humanity, by virtue of Adam 1, is heading towards the final judgment. You see? And what's the key? Repent and believe in Adam 2. That's the key to life, <laughs> right? So I wrote a book, From Adam to Christ, you know, because that's how the whole gospel and how the whole world is wired. It's like you're either in one or you're in the other. And if you're in the one, you are under the, you are under the penalty of the covenant of works. You will die. And, and, and that death will lead to eternal death if you don't repent, you know? And then after that, God made a covenant of grace, and so, because man can no longer be redeemed under a covenant of works, no one could ever earn it. No one, no one, no one, no one. 
So you have Noah, he can't do it. You have uh, Abraham, he couldn't do it. You have uh, Moses, he couldn't do it. You have David, he couldn't do it. Nobody can do it. Nobody can live perfectly before God. You know, what does God tell Abraham? I think it's Genesis chapter 17. God tells Abraham, you know, Abraham, you shall live before me and be blameless. Was Abraham blameless? No, he lied. He said Sarah was his sister, you know. He's, he's, you know, he's a deceiver. He's got a wicked heart, you know, and, bur- and, and, and um, in sin, he was conceived. You know, he's still a child of Adam, like it or not. And therefore, and what's the proof of that? Abraham lived such and such and died, right? And that's the proof of that. So, so, so then we have to be saved not on the principle of works anymore, but on a principle of grace. Now, what is the, what is the logic of grace? How does grace work? You know, we know how works, works work. How it works, works. <laughs> we know how the principle of works operates. <laughs> there we go. Right? It operates according to law, according to merit, according to obedience. Is grace according to law? Is grace according to works? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. And so to prove that, uh, let me just move this out of the way here for a second. But to prove that, you know, uh, Romans becomes critical. Chapter 4, I mean, you know, God, you know, is talking about Abraham. And basically, uh, he's talking about how the gospel is based on what? Promise. It's not based on works, right? Uh, And so you can't. And so probably the best, somebody read that for us. Romans chapter 4, verse 16. That's going to be the key. Somebody there. Anyone there? Yes, go for it. I almost picked on you. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Too much to develop there. Whew. But just establishing the link between grace and faith faith operates upon grace grace operates upon faith that's the way there is this is a question i get uh this is the question that my opponent for this debate (sighs) i think he's gonna back out i don't know i don't believe i don't trust but we'll see uh i don't have any confidence that this debate is gonna happen it's just too good to be true but anyway so 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 uh (coughs) he gets hung up on this thing of is faith a work? Is faith a work? And what he says is, faith is not a work, therefore, synergi- there's nothing wrong with synergism. You see? Because, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not really truly synergism, even though it's my faith that saves me. Your faith is what saves you? Uh, I don't know about that. Right? <laughs> See how easy, so this guy talks like this nonstop, you know, we're sa- and then he'll go, you know, we're saved by faith. What? That is a very non-critical way to approach salvation. That is just not the way the authors of Scripture talk. They're very careful when they talk about faith and grace and salvation. First of all, the word justification and the word salvation are not synonymous. Do you know that? Right? Justification is not a synonym of salvation. Salvation comprises the whole entire enterprise of salvation, all the way from election and predestination all the way to glorification, you see? Uh, justification is just one aspect of salvation. That's it. 
and, uh, and, and our justification is, uh, uh, you know, something that uh, God does because uh, he credits our faith to our faith, the righteousness of Christ. Uh, but it's all a gift of God. Everything is a gift of God, you know, at this point. That's exactly what Paul's point is in Romans chapter 4. It's like this was given to Abraham. He didn't work for it. It wasn't wages that were due to him. He didn't earn it. Therefore, it's a gift. And if it's a gift, then faith is accordance to grace. It's not of you. It's not owing to you. You, you don't deserve the, the credit for it or the glory for it. You didn't earn it. This eliminates the potential that you earned anything from God, don't you see? And so this is the way that God in covenant theology is now going to save humanity is no longer on the principle of works, at least not for us. It's, it's grace for us, as people have said. Grace for us works for him. You cannot deny the covenant of works. You deny the covenant of works, you're in trouble. Okay, because um, what Jesus did was meritorious, and uh, we can't get away from that. That that begins to uh, corrode the whole justice system of God. Okay, uh, Adam was in a covenant of works. He had the potential. Had he obeyed perfectly, he had the potential to inherit eternal life, eat of the tree of life, and live forever. You see, but because he failed, he sinned. He forfeited that eschatology. Okay, any questions? Um, is that helpful or confusing? Don't answer that question. Yes, sir. Yes, please. No, I think it's conceptual. There is no ante- there is no antecedent there to the uh, to the what he's talking about. If you turn there for a second, is where he says, um, "For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves." It is a gift of God. What is a gift of God? Well, there's no clear antecedent in the Greek because the case, gender, and numbers do not line up, okay? Uh, In other words, if the gift would have been masculine, plural, and faith would have been masculine, okay, if the gift was feminine, plural, because faith is a feminine now, right? It would have been feminine or something like that. Uh, But they don't match up. I think faith is neuter, and this one is, uh, and gift is masculine, so there's no, there's no connection between, direct link between the two. What's the problem with that? It's very foolish because here Paul is not seeking to do that. <laughs> He's not trying to give you an antecedent to what the gift of God is. He's talking about the whole entire phenomenon of salvation. All of salvation is a gift of God, just like all of damnation is a result of sin, right? It's like you're condemned because of your sin, but you're made alive, and that is a gift. Of, so it's like verse 8 is essentially synonymous with verse 5, which talks about he made us alive together with Christ. Well, how do you know that? By grace you are saved. Did you see that? By grace you are saved. And then he repeats it again in, um, in, um, in verse 8. So I think it's the entire thing. Furthermore, there's plenty of places where faith is directly a gift of God. Right? Where's that at? Caleb's thinking hard on this one. Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 29. Let's go, let's close in prayer. I gave you the verse. I mean, I gave you the verse. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. It's been granted to you to believe. That's a good one. Also in Acts, you know, the Gentiles were given faith. You know, so. How do we do this in one session? Yes, sir, please. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, this is why you should be teaching Sunday school. You're so much more organized than I am. Everybody would be much more organized, too. Uh, yeah, um, next week, Brother Brian's going to take over and begin teaching on theology proper as part of Reformed theology. How did theology proper, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of God is essential to Reformed theology, and so uh, Brian has the uh, ominous task of explaining to us why. So let's go and let's go to worship. <laughs>